Everything classic. From the heart of Tennessee, Mule Town Radio. 103.7 FM and 1340 AM. Sometimes we need a little extra help. Whether you're recovering from an illness or surgery, Murray Regional Home Services offers care ranging from nursing services to physical therapy in the comfort of your home. Our highly qualified and caring staff provides individualized care for patients in an eight-county region. To learn more about Murray Regional Home Services, visit murrayregional.com or call 931-490-4600. That's 490-4600. Hello, I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. You may have heard our previous commercials about compression hosiery that we carry at Holland's Pharmacy. Well, we've recently expanded into a full line of knee braces, back, wrist, ankle, and other support wear. We will gladly help you get just the right fit for these items and, of course, special order items to ensure the proper fit. Come see us at Holland's Pharmacy, 1608 Hatcher Lane, or call us at 931-388-4233. 388-4233. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter. Like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Hi, I'm Steve, the garbage man. By now you all know about Don, our service truck guy. Well, let me tell you about another member of our service team, and that's Mike Ashley. He's the guy you'll talk to when you call the office. Just call and talk to Mike one time at 931-540-0919, and you'll see why we're lucky to have him here at the Garbage Man. Thanks, Mike, for all you do to keep the Garbage Man first in service. That's 931-540-0919. For 60 years, people all over Middle Tennessee have returned to Parks Motor Sales again and again because they get the best vehicles and best service possible. Go to ParksMotorSales.com for options. New Buicks, pre-owned cars, trucks, and SUVs, financing, certified technicians, parts, tires, and more. Then stop by 919 Nashville Highway, test drive a Buick, and see why the Buick Encore and Buick Enclave are among America's most reliable vehicles. Experience the new Buick at Parks Motor Sales. Sales. Good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events, places, and people we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we're continuing our series on African-American education in Tennessee, In our first show in the series, we discussed the establishment of the Freedmen's Bureau and Freedmen's Schools, which were federal initiatives inaugurated in 1865 to educate the formerly enslaved. That hugely important program was a first step in educating those who had been denied education previously. That experiment lasted from 1865 until 1872 when the Bureau ceased to exist. 
Local black schools struggled to keep their doors open, mostly funded by the families of the students who attended the schools, as well as religious and philanthropic organizations. Although African Americans were free in society, resources and opportunities, let alone equal opportunities, were scarce. With the 20th century, however, came progressive initiatives designed to benefit rural areas. In 1912, a new program to assist and expand African American education was established with the Rosenwald School Building Program. At its height, there were some 5,300 Rosenwald schools in 15 states that educated more than 600,000 African American children. The Rosenwald School Building Program is the topic of today's edition of History's Hook. I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, local historian and president of the African American Heritage Society of Murray County, Joanne McClellan. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning, Tom. And we're joined via phone by Dr. Mary Hofschwelly, professor of history at Middle Tennessee State University. Dr. Hofschwelly received her bachelor's degree from Chatham University, her master's from the College of William and Mary, and her Ph.D. from Vanderbilt University. Dr. Hofschwelly specializes in Tennessee and women's history and is an expert on the Rosenwald School Program, having authored a number of books and publications on the subject, including Bringing New Hope and Confidence to the People, Children in the Rosenwald Schools of the American South, 1912 to 1932, which was published by Rutgers University Press, Rebuilding the Rural Southern Community, published by the University of Tennessee Press, and Rosenwald Schools in the Rural Southern Landscape, published by the University of Colorado Press. Good morning, Dr. Hofschwelly. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we get into the Rosenwald School, which we'll spend most of our time on, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, what was happening in African-American education following the end of the Freedmen's School Program in 1872. What was the status of black education in the South between 1872 and the beginning of the Rosenwald Program in 1912? Well, it was very spotty, um, as um, your introduction explained. In that period after the closure of the Freedmen's Bureau, um, African-American communities largely shouldered the burden for educating their children. Um, Tennessee did have a law that uh, mandated, if you will, uh, universal public education But uh, county school boards and local district boards actually decided which students would receive public funding. And often the black schools were left out or were last on their list. So black parents, um, community members would supplement whatever meager resources were provided by public funding to offer education for their children. Many churches assume that responsibility as well. What did a typical school, uh, an African-American school in rural Tennessee, look like uh, by the late 19th century? Well, some would have been um, sort of disguised uh, in in other buildings. So many public schools for black children operated in church buildings. Um, They operated in the buildings of fraternal lodges, and so they were really um, not visible on that landscape, and so you would not have said, oh, there's a school. You would have looked at a building and said, there's a church, there's a lodge, but everybody in the community would have known that that is also where the school operated. Uh, Other buildings would have been really depended on 
um, whether community members had been able to raise enough money themselves to build a school building, or they could have perhaps repurposed an earlier building, so perhaps an earlier church when they built a new church facility. Um, or they had taken over a pre-existing school building that had been built for white children and then abandoned when a new school for white children was uh, constructed, and they had taken that over. So they would have been really just simple rectangular buildings, often made, uh, in fact, most likely made of wood, and they would have had a few windows, uh, one or two doors, and very little in the way of amenities. Some of these schools have been very well documented with photography. I know in the Murray County Archives we have a a good collection of some of the early schools uh, that were done. And the the ubiquitous bench, sort of the half-log bench that the children had to sit on all day long, uh, blackboards were almost non-existent. Um, But even bathroom facilities were a real problem. I think there was a a pretty large percentage of these early schools that had no bathroom facilities whatsoever, and those schools that did were very rudimentary. Right. Uh, That's it. Not even outhouses uh, were provided for the students or for the teacher in most cases. And no heating as well in many cases. Um, Sometimes a stove for the winter months, but um, nothing that would actually keep the entire building warm. So this period, the 1890s uh, up until about 1920s, considered the progressive era in America. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of reforms and changes going on, many of them having to do with education. What's going on in America that's prompting the reforms that are coming out of this progressive movement in the early 20th century? Well, in other parts of the United States, um, it would have been um, the influx of um, immigrants, from, primarily from Europe, um, that would have also been the um, concentration of people in large cities, so urbanization, and then the continuing industrialization of the United States. Here in the South, as in other more rural, agriculturally-based parts of the country, there was um, a lot of change happening as well, the mechanization of agriculture, um, though that, again, did not really affect southern agriculture as much, Um, but there was industry in the south, a small-scale mining industry, um, textile industries in places like southern middle Tennessee, Uh, but for our region, a major issue was migration and the beginnings of what we call the Great Migration, the out-migration of African Americans from the south into other parts of the country, primarily the Northeast and the Midwest and the big cities there as they looked for other opportunities. There was also a corresponding migration of white Southerners from rural areas into cities and into industries. And so there was a lot of concern then about the changes taking place, um, how industry was reshaping people's lives, And then what was going to happen to the rural South and to agriculture? Uh, How could you keep people on the farm uh, voluntarily or sometimes almost involuntarily uh, by forcing them to stay because of debt, for example, for sharecroppers? So that is part of what is motivating this. There's also a, a corresponding concern that is about the quality of life. So if people want to leave their rural communities, then 
what kinds of opportunities should be created for them, uh, providing schools access to education, um, was seen as one way that you could improve the quality of people's lives and also make them more productive citizens, more productive for the economy in the rural South. That's great. So we're going to uh, take our first break right now. uh, And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the beginning of this Rosenwald School Building Program. We'll be back right after these messages on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. At Stat Wellness Primary Healthcare, we know in today's busy world, people expect quality products and services, plus convenience, even when it comes to healthcare. Don't wait to see your provider, wait somewhere else for lab work, and then wait somewhere else again for prescriptions. We can take care of it all in one stop. Come to Stat Wellness in Columbia, 1225 Hampshire Pike, and my team and I will take good care of you. Get on the road to wellness, Stat. Call now, 931-982-6333, 982-6333. Not everyone that goes to jail deserves to be there, but they all want out. If you or a loved one ends up in jail, call Billy Hood at ABC Bonding to get out as fast as possible. ABC Bonding knows how the system works, and they know their customers are in dire need of help. That's why they're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week to get you out. ABC Bonding in Columbia can be reached at 490-9799. That's 490-9799. Jones & Lang Sporting Goods is a full-service sporting goods store that supplies everything you, team, or your entire league need for sports. Call 388-8060 or go to jonesandlang.com. Apparel, equipment, fan gear, from postseason prep to customized trophies at season's end. They've been in business more than 50 years because they give you the best products, the best service, and the best prices possible. Jones & Lang Sporting Goods, located in Neely's Mill right here in Columbus. Call 388-8060 or go to jonesandlang.com. If you're looking for quality, affordable jewelry, you must visit Tillis Jewelry. 30 years designing custom jewelry, restoring vintage jewelry, repairing jewelry and watches, and they're the perfect place for bridal pieces and engagement rings. They can help you find exactly what you're looking for or help you design the jewelry of your dreams. Just a short drive to Lewisburg on the square to visit Tillis Jewelry or browse Tillis Jewelry's collections on Facebook or Instagram. Property care doesn't have to be back-breaking and time-consuming work for you. Let the specialists at Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping take care of it. You just enjoy. New or existing homes and businesses, basic lawn maintenance, complete property makeovers, new landscaping installs, and anything in between. Grading, gravel driveways, culverts, sod, drainage, beds, whatever you need. Find Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping on Facebook, then give them a call. Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. We're continuing our conversation today about African-American education in Tennessee. Uh, And uh, in 1912, the Rosenwald School Building Program gets its start. Uh, 
it represented an important partnership between two men, Dr. Hofschwelli, Booker T. Washington, and Julius Rosenwald. I think out of those two, most people recognize the name Booker T. Washington, uh, and maybe less so Julius Rosenwald. Remind our listeners first, who is Booker T. Washington, and how is he involved with this endeavor? Well, Booker T. Washington was one of the most uh, well-known, influential, and important representatives of African Americans in the late 19th and very early 20th century. Um, and that is a position he sought eagerly for himself to uh, advance as, in a way for African Americans, as he saw it, by seeking um, access to education and economic advancement rather than social and political rights. Um, he was the principal of Tuskegee Institute, which was a very influential institution of higher education for African Americans in Macon County, Alabama. He was actually born into slavery, so he, he came, he's sort of that last generation, I think, of former enslaved people who went on to, to be a leader um, within the African-American community. Uh, yeah. It's interesting, there are a few, I think, audio recordings of some of his speeches, which if our listeners ever get an opportunity to, to listen to some of those, they're, they're really mm-hmm. quite amazing to, to hear his voice. Um, perhaps the lesser uh, known name in this partnership was Julius Rosenwald. Tell, tell us a little about his background. Well, Julius Rosenwald was um, a member of the business elite. He was the president of Sears Roebuck and Company. Um, he had worked his way up through the clothing trade. Um, his family connections um, led him to positions in New York where he made contact with other people who would become influential in American finance. And then he moved to Chicago and uh, was able to buy into Sears Roebuck thanks to some family connections and then became president. He is really the person who made Sears Roebuck the powerhouse in merchandising that it became at the turn of the century. Right. I think one of the statistics that I heard was from 1895 until 1907 during his vice presidency at Sears Roebuck, annual sales increased from $750,000 to $50 million, an incredible business acumen that he had. And then, of course, uh, after finding great wealth, he turns to philanthropy. Um, I I also Mm -hmm. found it interesting that Rosenwald was brought up in Springfield, Illinois. He was born in 1862 during the war and and was born just a few blocks down the road from Abraham Lincoln's home in Springfield. Um, do, Do we have any indication, was his interest in... And in furthering African-American endeavors, uh, do you think that had anything to do with his growing up in Springfield, Illinois? Yes, it did. It did have an influence on him. He remembered vividly um, thinking about that as a child. I believe he sold a pamphlet um, uh, uh, about uh, Lincoln uh, as a young boy. Um, So that did have a big influence um, early on in, in, in his thinking. But um, it was really more his experiences in his adult life, his contact with other philanthropists, the influence of his rabbi um, who encouraged him to think about philanthropy as one of his responsibility as a member of the Jewish faith. Um, I think those had really more, um, more of an impact. Um, and leading him towards the Rosenwald School. Did Rosenwald play a role in the establishment of the Negro Business League? You know, uh, Booker T. Washington traveled the country, even coming to Columbia 
to uh, in 1909 to establish a Negro Business League. Did Rosenwald play a role in that? Uh, not to my knowledge, uh, although he was supportive of those kinds of efforts. But yeah, that's an amazing story. What Washington and then was able to do in terms of linking local business leaders through the business league. So we have these two men from very different backgrounds, Washington and Rosenwald. How how does this relationship between the two of them begin? Well, Rosenwald, like many other white Americans, read Up From Slavery, Booker T. Washington's most famous book. Uh, then he was encouraged to, by some fellow philanthropists, um, in fact, read some biographies of others who were involved in working on issues affecting African-American education in the South. Uh, he then uh, was invited by Booker T. Washington to join the Board of Trustees for Tuskegee Institute, and that is the beginning of their relationship. Um, they became immediately great friends. I mean, they had a great personal relationship, and Rosenwald was looking for a way to sort of make his own mark um, in African-American education, and uh, Booker T. Washington had sort of lined him up as his, the next great benefactor who could do something. I thought it was interesting that Rosenwald also contributed funds to some of the great African-Americans, who's who in African-American history, like uh, Marian Anderson and Julian Bond's father. Have you uh, read any of the information about that? That was through the fellowship program yeah. that the Rosenwald Fund started later on. That okay. really didn't begin until after um, Julius Rosenwald himself had passed away. Of oh, course, okay. Booker T. Washington was long gone by then. But no, that is a fascinating legacy that the Rosenwald Fund left okay. behind. So I think initially, um, Mr. Rosenwald agrees to fund five schools in Alabama, and then it sort of grows from there. Um, Talk to us a little bit about how, how the program works. So if a community wanted to build a school, what was the, what was the process in place by which, by which they could build a school through the Rosenwald Fund? Well, at the very beginning, it was sort of a three-way split of uh, the cost of building a new school. Um, and this was something, actually, that Tuskegee had been experimenting with um, in communities before, um, they recruited Julius Rosenwald as a benefactor. But the idea was that um, a community would uh, apply to build a school. They'd have to have lined up the support of their local school board. The school board would put in one-third of the cost. Um, Julius Rosenwald would put in a second third. And then community members would have to raise the final third of the construction cost. Um, now, that changed over time, but what remained constant is that there would be three major sources of funding, um, local public school funding, the Julius Rosenwald Fund's uh, contribution, and then a local match to the Rosenwald Fund. So this required a commitment from both the African-American community as well as the white community um, in order to get a school how how difficult right. of a sell was it to to get a school in a community? Uh, what what were the racial tensions that were were happening um, around around well, this idea? I, that yeah, um, that really depended on the local context 
and how sympathetic a given county superintendent was or was not. And of course, most of those county superintendents of schools were elected. Um, and so they had to face um, constituents um, every few years to hold on to their jobs. In other cases, they were appointed um, and had maybe a little bit more job security. So they tend to reflect the overall um, context um, of their own community. So in some places, it was rel a relatively easy sell um, in the sense that, um, yes, the school board had been unwilling to spend much money, but then faced with the prospect of a Rosenwald grant and the uh, black communities match to that grant, then they'd say, okay, now we'll go ahead and spend some money on this new school. And in other places, um, it took years of petitions even to um, get a new school, even with this extra funding and the offer of additional black parent support. Right. I, I think it's a, a, a brilliant way to do it. It's bringing the community together. And there are some thought processes behind the behind behind this, I think, that's working very effectively. One is it's sort of forcing African-American, uh, the African-American community and the white community to work together to a common goal. Uh, it's, so it's building community support. It's requiring a commitment uh, on all sides, uh, both in kind and financially. Uh, and what politician's going to turn down free money if it's available to him. So it kind of forces the issue. I, I think it's a, a wonderful way to, to for this program to work. Um, what about, let's talk about the teachers for a second. Who, who were to be the teachers in the Rosenwald schools? Were they trained as part of this process? Were they paid uh, for through this process? Uh, let's talk about the teachers a little bit. Well, the teachers, of course, were public school teachers, so they were employed by the, the county uh, school system. Um, they had received a varying amounts of education. What is interesting is that if you look in the early 20th century for um, uh, comparing white and black teachers, there were times when African-American teachers actually had higher educational levels than their white peers. Um, and that reflects the actually sort of the, the lack of opportunities in other professions for African-Americans at that time. Um, in the very early years, there was not much um, higher education available, public higher education, I should say, for African-Americans for teacher training. But uh, denominational schools and later what would become uh, Tennessee State University offered teacher training programs. Uh, for African-Americans, and so they would have been the staff for these uh, schools. Um, they were not, however, paid the same uh, as their white peers in the same system, but they were well-respected, um, great community leaders in many, many cases. What is interesting here in Columbia is that um, Roger, um, John W. Johnson, who was the president of Roger Williams University, and uh, his brother, conducted a teacher's institute every summer, and several of these uh, teachers that went on to teach in the rural schools attended that teacher's institute. Um, the, they were, it's like a 10 or 12 week program, and then they went to Nashville to be certified to teach. Uh, so that was mm -hmm. the teachers that I remember, in fact, my Rosenwald teacher uh, got her first certificate through that program. Um, 
so rural communities varied in sizes a great deal. So some of these schools are very small, one teacher schools, all the way up to to schools that could house uh, seven, eight, and and nine teachers. Let's talk about the Rosenwald program in terms of the architecture. So a community is able to come together, uh, get the funds and the in-kind support to build a school. Uh, what did these schools look like, and how are they chosen? Well, that was one of the great um, goals of the Julius Rosenwald School Program was to provide purpose-built, properly designed and constructed public school buildings for African-American children and their teachers. So uh, in the very early years, um, uh, Robert R. Taylor, the, an architect at Tuskegee Institute, um, prepared a number of designs for schools that could be used for the construction of Rosenwald Schools. Then in 1914, um, here in Tennessee, Samuel L. Smith, who was a white man who was put in charge of African-American schools for the State Department of Education, he developed a new set of plans. And by 1920, his plans uh, became the official Rosenwald Community School Plans when he took over running that program. Uh, however, I should say the Rosenwald Fund, even though they provided school plans and made them available free of charge, they did not require communities to use their plans. What they did require was that the school building be built to modern standards. So they approved school buildings based on that. Uh, so not all Rosenwald schools uh, look alike, but what's also interesting is that because those plans were free, um, county school boards, who don't usually like to spend a lot of money on architect fees, they began using those plans to build not just uh, Rosenwald schools, but other schools for African Americans um, that did not have Rosenwald grants, and sometimes for white schools as well. So architecturally, there, there's sort of this form that they're following. Um, they were paying attention to things like uh, airflow and proper lighting uh, for the students. And uh, one of the big ones, of course, is sanitation. They were having a real problem with children's health, especially in these rural areas where uh, some of the children lived in less than sanitary conditions at home. Coming to school uh, was sort of exacerbating the problem. So as they're thinking about building these and, and making these designs for Rosenwald schools, they have all of these things in mind, including restroom facilities, which is sort of a, a big, big step forward, as we talked about. That was a, a big change. Um, so yeah. uh, how, how many, do we know how many Rosenwald schools were built in Tennessee? Oh, I used to have that number memorized, <laughs> Tom, but <laughs> no, that's all right. But we're, but... Um, look that up. Um, aren't I? I'm trying to find my list here. It's 385, I believe. Um, there we go. Excuse me. 354 schools. In Tennessee, they also built um, nine teachers' homes and ten shop buildings. Those would have been um, for vocational education. So, excuse me, that's a total of 373. Um, Mary, can you talk about the role of the jeans teachers? Oh, jeans teachers. Um, yes, they were some of the most important female educational leaders in counties like Murray County. Um, Anna Jeans was a white woman from Philadelphia who, like Julius Rosenwald, became interested in supporting public education for blacks in the rural South. And she set up her own philanthropic foundation, the Jeans Fund, 
to support teachers who would be itinerant um, vocational teachers in a given county. The vast majority of these teachers were female, um, and those initially their work was um, in promoting vocational education. Over time, they became really curriculum supervisors. They also were critical organizers and fundraisers for Rosenwald schools in the communities where they were working. I think this is a good place to stop. Uh, We'll come back in a minute and talk more about the curriculum at Rosenwald Schools and then talk about uh, what Rosenwald Schools look like uh, on a local level. Uh, We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. Asgard in Norse mythology means dwelling of the gods that ruled the Vikings. Their presence and exploration was so profound that their three-century reign in parts of Europe is known as the Viking Age. Much like their ancestors, Asgard Brewing Company practices the Viking tradition of using what is locally available. You can taste the attention to detail in Asgard's farm-to-barrel brewing method with locally sourced ingredients. Stop by Asgard Brewing Company on the Duck River in downtown Columbia and channel your inner Viking. Brown's Body Shop has two locations to provide your vehicles with high-quality body and frame repairs, the best paint jobs, and custom body fabrications. Brown's Body Shop has been successful for more than 50 years because of their highly trained personnel, competitive prices, superior customer care, and timely service. Don't put off body repairs or that custom paint job at Fenders. Go to Brown's Body Shop today, 1505 Nashville Highway in Columbia, 129 Alpha Drive in Franklin. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Hello, I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. You may have heard our previous commercials about compression hosiery that we carry at Holland's Pharmacy. Well, we've recently expanded into a full line of knee braces, back, wrist, ankle, and other support wear. We will gladly help you get just the right fit for these items and, of course, special order items to ensure the proper fit. Come see us at Holland's Pharmacy, 1608 Hatcher Lane, or call us at 931-388-4233. 388-4233. Property care doesn't have to be back-breaking and time-consuming work for you. Let the specialists at Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping take care of it. You just enjoy. New or existing homes and businesses, basic lawn maintenance, complete property makeovers, new landscaping installs, and anything in between. Grading, gravel driveways, culverts, sod, drainage, beds, whatever you need. Find Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping on Facebook, then give them a call. Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the Rosenwald uh, School Building Program. 
Uh, I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about the curriculum at Rosenwald schools. What were the children learning uh, in these schools? Well, they were supposed to follow the regular curriculum mandated by the State Department of Education. Um, so they would have um, had the standard academic subjects. However, at Rosenwald schools, the initial idea was for there to be an extra emphasis on vocational education, which was very much in keeping with Booker T. Washington and many whites' perception of what was proper for black children to learn. That said, what um, was found is that uh, the teachers followed the curriculum and they uh, might have incorporated vocational subjects, but they stressed academics as well as the best way for their students to um, improve their lives. So there was a, a little bit of a controversy between Booker T. Washington's um, uh, a theories on uh uh, African-American promotion. He had this idea of uh, the self-help philosophy uh, that if you uh, right. work hard, uh, get educated, you can sort of bring yourself up. There were others in the community, in the African-American community, African-American leadership, who sort of saw things a little bit differently. So this is a little bit of a controversial aspect. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, I think W.E.B. Du Bois is one who, who comes out rather harshly uh, 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 against Booker Washington on on this idea, right? That um, the, you know, people like W. B. Du Bois thought that was limiting opportunities for African Americans as a group, and then particularly as individuals, that they would not be able to fulfill their own potential, and that it was their right to be able to fill their to fulfill that potential. So there is that tension broadly. Um, but I, and I think the way it plays out in Rosenwald schools is the particular balance that teachers and their communities struck in trying to achieve both goals, academic training and then the required vocational training. So it, it's interesting. Every Rosenwald school has a designated vocational room, yet what you see people complaining about who were looking in at those schools um, from the Rosenwald Fund or from the State Department of Education is they're not using those rooms for uh, vocational subjects. They're teaching cl regular classes there. Um, so what happens over time is that that vocational training gets put into sort of a, a smaller uh, context and academics comes to the fore. Right. Right, I, I think it's. Really... Uh, I'm not sure that Du Bois would have thought that it happened fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, Joanne, do we know how many Rosenwald schools were built in Murray County? Based on what I've found so far, we had about 15 that followed the guidelines. They were funded with Rosenwald funds, and they were built using the architecture. The uh, first one was in um, Godwin, Tennessee, which was actually an experimental school. Uh, it was funded with the money from Tuskegee Institute, and uh, it was the first one. It was built in 1917. The first teacher actually went to Tuskegee to be trained to become a teacher in the Rosenwald School. Um, and then we had uh, most were two te uh, one-teacher schools, but we had several two-teacher schools. We had one that ended up being a five-teacher school down in Mount Pleasant, which became the Clark High School. Um, but... Um, the Jeans teachers really, really played a large role in Murray County. 
I was fortunate enough to get to know the second jeans teacher, the first jeans teacher, Stella House Smith. She was like really, really focused on early on, like Mary said, in the 1920s, the industrial education. Uh, in the 1920-21 school year, she established about three schools. And at the end of that school year, she had this big exhibit on East 8th Street at the Oddfellas Hall where she invited W.G. Hale down to speak. And W.G. Hale was the president of the, uh, he was the founding president of TSU. So she had him to come down and speak where all of these students from across the county showed their industrial projects. But... Um, about how many of the 15 or so Rosenwald schools in Murray County uh, were built following w one of the Rosenwald plans? All 15, plans. All 15 that I've seen um, followed the plan. Now, in 1940, um, both um, Mrs. Uh, Smith and Ms. Spoulton talked about uh, 28 Rosenwald schools in uh, 28 schools in Murray County, but I have not identified those, the other others as being Rosenwald schools because, number one, I haven't found the funding assigned to them from Rosenwald funds, and I haven't found any other additional information. Now, the Fish University database has only nine that they list in Murray County, but by going through the Murray County um, Board, Board of Education minutes, I found the others. Hmm. Um, and I found that uh, Mary is correct. The funding was like one-third, one-third, one-third. But in some cases, the the community contributed more than just the third. In some cases, they contributed less. Uh, you know, I was fortunate to attend um, Rosemont School, and that was one of the best experiences that I think I've had. So uh, your school was the Theta School? My school was the Theta School. Uh, it was uh, established in 1923. It was one of the two teacher schools, and it had um, the teacher principal that taught. And by the time I started in 1953, uh, the focus was strictly education, not industrial. I don't remember seeing an industrial room uh, there were days when um, we had um, the home demonstration club or the forest club people come in and they taught sewing and cooking and public speaking even. But as far as an industrial room, we didn't have that in 1953. It was really reading, writing, and arithmetic. Do we know in Murray County, was there any... Uh, maybe animosity is too strong a word, but was there any pushback from white citizens uh, in, in building Rosenwald schools here? Well, the problem that I've seen, and I've talked to several people who attended Rosenwald schools, the problem that, that I see is that they felt that the Rosenwald schools or their schools in general were not supported. Um, we were given secondhand books. Uh, we didn't have the facilities, the lavatory facilities that um, the white schools had. We didn't have the um, the equipment, playground equipment. The, but the most important thing is that we were not given secondary education. In most of the, in the, until the late 50s, the African-American children that attended the Rosenwald schools had no opportunity to, to go to high school because transportation was not provided. In order to attend high school, you had to live in the city to go to high school. Now, my I'm a second-generation Rosenwald school person, so, you know, my, my uh, 
my my family could not attend high school unless they boarded in the city with uh, with someone and my auntie did board in the city so, so families had to be separated out in order for children to go to to be able to continue their right. education and that was like until the um the um, mid 50s in the mid 50s um i know my uncle drove kids to high school and then eventually they were provided buses but in, in contrast in 1936 there was a white high school in my community and then they closed that high school and then the county provided buses to send those kids to the either the high school in uh Santa Fe or the high school in uh in Spring Hill so the biggest problem the biggest resentment i think is they didn't have an opportunity to go to high school Dr. Hofschwelli do we have any statistics uh on graduation rates uh with the Rosenwald schools I don't. Um, and of course, those really changed over time. I mean, if you're looking at high school graduation rates, um, high schools themselves um, and high school graduates, like four-year high school graduation rates, you know, that is not something you see until really the 1920s. It's sort of hard for us to imagine, but it was not until about 100 years ago now that high school became a common experience for many people. For African Americans, as Joanne just alluded to, it was even more difficult to be able to stay in high school. So what the Rosenwald Fund looked at was not so much a graduation rate, but what we would call a persistence rate. How long could African American children remain in school? And they wanted to raise those rates from what had started out as an average of really for only getting to the fourth grade That's to correct. push to the sixth grade, the eighth grade, the tenth grade, and then eventually the twelfth grade. Um, but uh, but that kind that kind of persistence to the twelfth grade um, depended on having access to a full twelve year public school education, and then being able economically to afford that um, as well. So you really don't see that until the um, late 1930s and in the 1940s. So do we see, how do we measure success, I guess is the, the proper question then. Are we seeing uh, an, an increase in success for students as a result? Is the Rosenwald program uh, being successful in, in the manner that that Washington and Rosenwald foresaw? Well, your, your question is, is very apt in terms of how do we measure that success? Um, if we looked at, did it break down um, all the barriers that kept people from having access to public education? No. Um, did they ever get an equal public education? No. Um, but on the other hand, what is, I think, most important about the Rosenwald Fund and its operation is the way that it created this partnership between community members, school boards, state departments of education, and they could leverage that Rosenwald funding to expand opportunities and access to education that probably would not have been possible without the leverage of that Rosenwald grant. And so to the extent that children were able to get two or four or even six more years of education, um, 
that I think is a success. And I think the way that communities came to feel about their schools is another measure of success. It was a representation of individual achievement, but also community achievement. We're going to take our final break right now. We'll be back in three minutes or so. You're listening to History Sook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. Hi, I'm Steve, the garbage man. Have you been hauling your own garbage to the convenience center? Are you tired of doing it? Does your work schedule keep you from hauling it off regularly? Is your teenage son not taking it off like he promised when he got his driver's license? Do you have something better to do on Saturday? If any of these questions strike home to you, call the Garbage Man at 931-540-0919 and your problem will be solved. Looking for convenience? Try Quickmark Convenience Stores, conveniently located all across Murray County, Southern Middle Tennessee, and North Alabama. Right now, get 99-cent icy any size. Hungry for breakfast? Try two ham biscuits for $3. Or how about two grilled chicken sandwiches for just $4? It's Quickmark Convenience Stores, conveniently located all across Southern Middle Tennessee and North Alabama. Quickmark Convenience Stores, proudly serving Shell Gasoline staff at Spring Hill Memorial Park and Funeral Home know that today's busy schedules often cause you to put things off that need to be done. Planning for the inevitable is a special gift from the heart that spares your loved ones the burden of making difficult decisions at the time of your death. The experienced and caring staff at Spring Hill Memorial will assist you in making these decisions. Locally owned and operated, Spring Hill Memorial Park Funeral Home and Cremation Services, 931-486-0059. <laughs> Visit your local Buick and GMC dealership first for new or pre-owned cars, trucks, and SUVs. Parks Motor Sales. At Parks, professional sales staff makes shopping easy. Buick and GMC financing can put you in the vehicle you want. And certified technicians keep vehicles running great. Experience the new Buick at Parks Motor Sales. Go online to parksmotorsales.com. Find your favorite vehicle. Then stop by Parks at 919 Nashville Highway for a test drive. Parks GMC. We are professional. If you hear this commercial and spend absolutely any time outside, you need Columbia Farm Supply. Animal supplies, decor, hand tools, clothing, hardware, and more. For whatever you need on the farm, in your garden, on your front porch, your backyard, your property line, if you need it outside, check Columbia Farm Supply first. See all their products at morethanafarmstore.com, then you'll be ready to head out to 170 Bear Creek Pike to give them a visit. Columbia Farm Supply. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're continuing our conversation on African-American education in Tennessee, uh, focusing on the Rosenwald uh, School Building Program. Um, Joanne, you, you mentioned there were 15 or so schools uh, in uh, Murray County. Of those 15 schools, about how many are still standing today? Uh, actually, only uh, about four or five. Uh, the one in Canaan is being preserved, and it's a part of the AME Church. The Dry Forks one is a part of the Dry Forks Church. 
and then a couple have been converted to residences. So I think that's basically it. Um, there are some that are in ruins and some that are, you know, uh, should be completely demolished if they're not already. They may be of danger, but that's basically basically it. Dr. Hofschwelli, do we know how many on on the state level? Uh, and what are our efforts uh, that are underway to preserve some of these historic buildings? Well, there's a, I'm not sure of a, a, an exact number for the state, although there's been a survey done by the Tennessee Division of Archaeology to find all of the sites, or as many as possible, where Rosenwald School, school stood. Um, and we, I think the oldest is the one in uh, West Bemis, Tennessee, that dates back to 1916. The um, several hundreds still stand across the, the states, all 15 states that had Rosenwald schools. So there's been all sorts of um, preservation efforts. Um, the vast majority of them uh, led at the local level as people have taken over school buildings and sometimes use them as private homes um, or have converted them to other kinds of uses such as um, Head Start or community centers. And, and there's a few that are still in operation as schools as well. Um, and then there have been statewide efforts by preservation offices and national efforts led by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Um, they're wonderful little buildings from an architectural standpoint. They, uh, because they're built in the first two decades, uh, for the most part of the 20th century, uh, they sort of incorporate uh, the bungalow style or craftsman style of architecture. So those mm-hmm. those beautiful rectangular and, and square lines, the beautiful windows. Uh, so they're they're wonderful buildings uh, that you find in the community. Uh, I'd love to see more of them, more of them preserved. Um, Joanne. Williamson County is preserving one, uh, and they're moving it to an off-site to, um, uh, so, to some property that they own. And there's an organization down in uh, Lawrence County that recently acquired a Rosenwald School from the county because they still they are owned by the county. So they recently acquired a Rosenwald School from the county, and they're trying to start an organization to preserve that one. So there are people who are understanding the historical nature and the character of those buildings and the significance of those buildings to African-American history, and they're trying to trying to preserve them. And I noticed uh, the National Trust for Historic Preservation classified them as national treasures. So um, there are people that are understanding that they are important to the history. Um the these schools uh, really in terms of success and and what they meant to communities and what they meant to the African American community in terms of education is really immeasurable at this point can can either of you can pitch in on this who are some success stories are are there any people out there that went on to great success that maybe could even point towards their Rosenwald education experience as as their means of finding that success well i know i know of t- two people who are doctors that list their experiences at a Rosenwald school as contributing to their success. One is a dentist, one is a medical doctor in Baltimore. Uh, Here locally, we've had people who attended Rosenwald schools who've been very successful politically. So, uh, and I think there are are more people um, that, that are 
attributing their success to the times that they spent in the Rosenwald School. Dr. Hofschwelli, do you have... Well, I was just going to add um, two names that your listeners might recognize. Um, Representative John Lewis, congressman from Georgia, and exactly. Maya Angelou, uh, exactly. both are uh, Rosenwald School alumni. Right. That's exactly right. Dr. Hofschwelli, what what is the greatest legacy, uh, in your opinion, of the Rosenwald School program? And and just briefly, if you could, what's what's next in, in terms of African American education? What did it what did it lead to? Well, I think one of the most important legacies of the of the Rosenwald School movement is the way that it, it also lifted um, and increased educa- uh, attention to African American education. Period, um, and so it it acted as leverage for improving conditions for those who are attending other non Rosenwald uh, funded public schools. And that, that meant that the next generation, and I think there actually has been a study of this by the Federal Reserve Bank, looking at sort of lifetime consequences. And having attended a Rosenwald school you know, really improved life outcomes for the generation of African Americans who um, we would associate with the greatest generation, those who were young adults during World War II. So it was a great um, leap forward in that respect. Um, and I think, too, it leaves a, a legacy of community achievement and identity um, that um, many communities have drawn on you know, to this very day. But uh, what I think is the next step is to pay attention to what we see now in terms of the resegregation of public education and what that might mean for students in our future. That that will be uh, sort of the third segment in this in this three part uh, segment that we're doing on African American education is the the idea of segregated schools and the ending of segregated schools uh, following Brown versus Board of Education in the ni- mid nineteen fifties and and what that meant to Murray County uh, especially that will be sort of the third part in this where we're going to have uh, a few people coming into the show to talk about. Uh, what that meant in Murray County in 1969 as the schools uh, integrated. So that that will be the third step, which I'm I'm really looking forward to to having that uh, conversation. Um, that's going to conclude our discussion today. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mary Hofschwelli, for sharing your expertise with us. Uh, we appreciate it very much. Um, oh, thank you. Um, for, for our listeners, uh, Dr. Hofschwelli is a prolific writer on the subject and on the subject of the progressive era generally, so uh, check out her books. They're widely available. Joanne, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you. And I'm going to leave you with this quote from Julius Rosenwald. He said, All the other pleasures of life seem to wear out, but the pleasure of helping others in distress never does. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. If you have water, smoke, or fire damage, call my friend Daisy at ServPro and join us again next week as we connect the history in your own backyard to the world uh, on another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. 
Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by SurfPro of Murray and Giles County. SurfPro, faster to any disaster. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Holtz Towing offers complete roadside assistance and has been rescuing drivers in Middle Tennessee for 23 years. They are available 24 hours a day, so in an emergency, just call Holtz Towing right away. If you get a flat, engine trouble, or run out of gas, call Holtz Towing. Mention this ad and save $5. They do minor repairs and pay cash for junk cars. Remember, Holtz Towing, 615-708-7073. That's 615-708-7073. Welcome to Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram. Dedicated to exceptional service, the highest integrity, and your complete satisfaction. We're proud to serve all of Middle Tennessee with over 500 new and 125 pre-owned vehicles in stock to choose from. Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram offers volume discounts from friendly and knowledgeable sales professionals for expert service from our certified technicians. That's how we became the number one Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram dealer in the state of Tennessee. You can count on us. Number one claim based on 2015 combined retail and fleet sales for Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in the state of Tennessee. Hello, I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. You may have heard our previous commercials about compression hosiery that we carry at Holland's Pharmacy. Well, we've recently expanded into a full line of knee braces, back, wrist, ankle, and other support wear. We will gladly help you get just the right fit for these items and, of course, special order items to ensure the proper fit. Come see us at Holland's Pharmacy, 1608 Hatcher Lane, or call us at 931-388-4233. 388-4233. At Southern Tray Steakhouse in downtown Columbia, we hand-select only the best black Angus beef for our cut-by-hand steaks. Our chops are French-cut and flame-kissed. Want something lighter and fair? Try our garden-fresh salads or something fresh from the sea. Classic Southern sides, a bounty of appetizer options and pastas, and some of the best sandwiches in town. There's something for everybody at Southern Tray Steakhouse on West 7th Street in downtown Columbia. WKOM, your music, your sports, your radio station. WKOM, 101.7 FM. You hit the right spot.